this series on the spiritual disciplines is about giving us the tools to actually fundamentally be changed. We're embarking on the path of disciplined grace. Disciplined because there's a role for us to play. Grace because real inner change is always and only ever a free gift given to us by God. God could have created humans as immovable rocks, like blocks of granite. Instead, he gave us freedom, the capacity for moral, emotional, and spiritual transformation. We can become better people. The key is understanding how. We've been doing a series on the disciplines um, as Christians, and, and Ed and Hannah asked me to speak on worship, and as the king of the worship department, I figured it would only be appropriate for me to step off my throne. Um, we live in a time where worship culture and church is so um, industrialized. I think it's an interesting time. I grew up, my parents are worship pastors. They were in Indonesia before I was born. Then they got radically saved, um, became Christians, left their fame and fortune behind, and then became lowly worship leaders um, in Australia in the 80s and 90s. So I grew up traveling around with them and just experiencing worship and kind of going to every worship conference you can imagine. And so I've had an interesting vantage point of kind of worship culture from the 90s to today. And it is so interesting to me how it's, it's literally an industry now. Um, in 2017, it was estimated that worship music generated around half a billion dollars of revenue. Um, global church empires have been built off the back of worship movements. <clears throat> Christian rock stars exist. It's pretty funny to me. Uh, American Idol alumni can make a living traveling from church to church leading singing. Worship songs are winning Grammy Awards. Um, in our lifetime, I feel that we've seen a rapid evolution of worship culture, and it does feel like the days of, you know, very strictly traditional liturgy are kind of behind us. I know that there are still churches that hold out to, like, an organ and hymns and things, but I don't think there's a lot of young people joining, flocking to those churches. <laughs> I don't know if there's a lot of young people flocking to any church at the moment. Um, hymn writers used to be theologians, now they're 17-year-olds and they're on TikTok, uh, worship in many churches has become a Hollywood production. There are smoke machines, lighting designers, in-ear monitors. I always love that one. I'm a professional musician. In-ear monitors are the worst. You should only use them when you have to. And I always love when I walk into a church that has like 50 people and everyone's on stage with headphones on and they've all got their own little... I'm always like, what are you... The budget you spent on that. Why? Anyway. Um... <laughs> But we have them, TV cameras, giant LED screens, there's a church, there's quite a big church that um, if you wanted to start a, a plant of their church, a franchise if you will, um, you could do it for $700,000 and what they would do is install a massive like wall sized screen, you would provide the music but then the preacher would beam in from heaven. Um, but what's funny is it's not just in mega churches that we see all this stuff. Like, you, I, who's walked into, like, a church of, like, 20 people and there's, like, such thick fog from a smoke machine? You're just like, are they trying to hide the fact that there's nobody here? Like, what is going on? Um, I know of small churches in Australia that employ worship photographers for their social media team. Employ is probably the wrong word. I think we all know that that's an unpaid position. Um, we're so deep in the culture of Christian worship that it's hard 
certainly for me anyway, it's hard not to want to engage with it ironically. We want to satirize it. Uh, I certainly want to roll my eyes at a lot of themes. We make TikToks of worship leader tropes, even though most of us, most of you, would throw up your hands if I started singing Oceans. That got one big laugh up the back, and I'm appreciative for that. (laughs) Um, Today, what I want to do is go back to where it's come from. So you're back to the very beginning of what I believe is the foundation for why we actually sing, why we bring songs into the context of church at all, why we sing songs together, why worship is important, um, and how it came to be that worship was something that we would use as a tool to access the presence of God. I think these are terms that we kind of throw around a lot, but a lot of the time we don't necessarily have all the pieces put together. Um, So this morning's talk is going to be a mix of object lesson and teaching. It'll be a little different to what we're used to, because mom and dad are away, but as I said, it's my church now. (laughs) So God's presence wasn't always accessible. Um, If we think back to the very beginning, Adam and Eve were created to exist entirely in the presence of God. But the introduction of sin separated us from that presence. Now, I have a prop. I have a series of props. And I'd like to point out that the production design budget for this morning was pretty substantial. Um, Also, let it be known, this is the first time, I think, in the history of bread that we've had a smoke machine that is going to work. Oh, guys, this would have been so much cooler if it just went... Okay, hang on. What's going on? Oh, I think it needs to load. Okay. Imagine there's a cloud of smoke around me right now. Uh, Listen, our production design budget's on its way. Um, Okay, I think this thing's just heating up. I'm going to give that a second. Okay, it's fine. I didn't need it for this bit. Uh, If you think that Adam and Eve were sort of created... Human beings were created to experience the kind of fullness of the presence of God, the way that we're told about um, the picture that we're given of the Garden of Eden is like top to bottom, we're naked in God's presence, like there's no, there's nothing separating us. And then sin comes in and separates human beings from the presence of God and extracts us from the presence of God. Everything that follows in the Bible about God bringing us back into a place of intimacy with him in his presence. He created us to be in his presence, and as soon as sin pulled us out of that place, every single thing that follows in the Bible to today has been about reconciling us to that place. A few millennia into God's plan for reconciliation steps this person called Moses, Uh, and I think most of us are familiar with the broad brushstrokes of Moses' life. Um, I'm going to race through some of this because there's a little bit to get through this morning. I'm trusting in some Sunday school um, memories, hopefully. Um, What I want to do is focus on how God chose Moses to create a dwelling place for God's presence on the earth. So once upon a time, God wanted every single human being to live in his presence. But because of sin, we were taken out of that presence. So God, a few centuries, a few millennia later, picks a guy and says, okay... Step one, come and dwell amongst my people. Not overwhelm them with my presence as they were created to be overwhelmed, but the beginning. I'm going to dwell amongst them. Um, And before we get into the details of this, I think it's always important for us to remember that in the Old Testament, it's all about object lessons. The stories and writings of these people, they're like silhouettes of what was to come in the New Testament. It's like the shadow. So it's still 
points to the thing, but it's not the thing. Um, which means that everything is kind of, it's like a shadow puppet show that hinted at what Jesus would come and do eventually. Um, it doesn't mean that we discount it because there's still plenty for us to learn in it, but it's always important to remember that everything always pointed towards Christ. Because God is infinite and we are infinite, he's the creator and he created us. Um, it's up to him to make himself known to us. And that's actually one of the things I love about the Christian faith. If you think about a lot of other spiritual practices and pursuits in the world, a lot, of, a lot of other teachings in other religions say that it's up to us to elevate ourselves through effort, through understanding, through growing, through opening our minds, through emptying ourselves. You elevate and reach a point of enlightenment. Whereas the Christian God says, good luck, you are a finite being with a beginning and an end. I'm infinite. You will never comprehend me. The only way is for me to make myself known to you. Hence, the Old Testament is full of these kind of symbols that are just supposed to, when you take it all together, it kind of creates this map of, what, of a bit of what God looks like because our brains can't comprehend otherwise. It's people, it's parables, symbols, types that help us grasp aspects of who God is and his kingdom that is to come. Okay, so Moses, let's, let's just check this before we... Ah! The presence of God, I, ladies and gentlemen, I give you. I will call upon your name. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to try not to let this turn into a stand-up comedy set. Um, so, the Israelites have been led out of Egypt. Watch the Prince of Egypt if you don't know that story. Um, they're in the desert. They're waiting to see what to do next. And then God asks Moses to meet with him on the top of Mount Sinai. And God, it says, appears to Moses as a massive cloud. Now, this would be a lot cooler if the cloud was pointing in this direction. Maybe I'll just do it like that. And Moses is standing in the presence of God. God speaks to him and says, Okay. He literally says these exact words. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, God gives Moses instructions for building a tent or a, a space that God will come and live in to be amongst his people. It's really offensive, isn't it? It's like, wow, who wants to? Anyway. Um, it says that the presence of God was so thick. In Exodus 34 verse 29, it describes Moses' face as being radiant because he'd spoken with the Lord. Moses had just spent a little bit of time because of God's grace in the fog of God's presence. Um, and he came down from the mountain, and he's like, all right, we have a plan. God instructs Moses to build a tent that would be God's dwelling place among men. Now, another word for tent is tabernacle. I will be using this word. At Bread, we often like to kind of not use these words that sometimes have a lot of baggage in Christian circles. Um, I think sometimes because we just have bad associations sometimes with, and experiences with these terms, I... It's so ingrained in my brain. I was homeschooled for a bunch of time. I just can't escape it, so I'm going to be using that word. I apologize if it triggers anybody. Um, it's also technically true. This is what the Bible describes it as. Um, it's a tabernacle, which literally just means dwelling place. And everything that I'm about to go through comes from Exodus chapter 25 through to 30. And you can read uh, in great detail in those chapters about God's instruction for building the tabernacle. And then Exodus 35 to 40 you can read about its construction. Now, rather than read you everything um, 
that God told them to do, they figured, let's just build it. Uh, so again, the production design budget here was stunning. Uh, and we had this Ark of the Covenant specially made. Okay. The first thing God tells Moses to do is to build the Ark of the Covenant, which was a, which was a box. I'm not going to get into the super details of how things were made and what they were made of, although it's worth reading because all of it kind of, again, points to some kind of aspect or truth that Jesus fulfills. So you can do that work yourself. Um, the Ark of the Covenant was a box that represented the throne of God, the presence of God, and the glory of God amongst his people. It was literally where God would, it was kind of like a Zoom call, except God was actually in the room. Um, it, there were two sort of angel-like figures that appeared over the top. In fact, we actually have a photo, um, of the, an actual photo of the Ark of the Covenant. There it is with some archaeologists. Um, that is, I guess that is actually kind of what it looked like, so that's, if you've never seen it. Um, inside the ark, there was some symbols and things that were important to Israel's history. There was a jar filled with manna, that God, the bread that God had sent them from heaven, um, Aaron's staff, and the Ten Commandments. Uh, God then told uh, Moses to build, can I get some help? Who wants to, you guys, you guys want to help me? Yeah, let's get the ladies up the front. Um, could you grab that table for me? God told them to build a table of shoebread. Uh, thank you. The table, we can put the table over here. Thank you so much. Uh, while they're setting that up, God also told Moses to build a lampstand. Here's our amazing lampstand. Here, Tavia, could you set this up for me? Thank you. Uh, it was a golden candlestick had seven lamps on it, filled with oil. The oil was specially pressed. Um, then the tent itself was divided into two sections. Yeah, we're going to keep bringing some things out. Thank you for this beautiful um, candlestick. Um, then these things were housed in a tent. Yeah, no, I'm trying to think of how we're going to do this tent. Yeah, we're going to get... <laughs> that feels bad, like a bad opportunity for comedy. Um, we're going to get to the tent in a second. There was a bronze altar of burnt offering. Here's our bronze altar. I'm not even going to say anything as I do this. Yeah, okay. Um, great. <clears throat> that was where they would sacrifice animals as a sin offering. There were priestly garments. Let's go the white and blue. Um, priestly garments. Do you want to throw that around your shoulders, Kristen? Now, the high priest would not have been a woman because it was very sexist back then. Um, but you look fantastic. Uh, there were priestly garments. Um, there was even a breast piece, and the priests had to be consecrated in order to be allowed to interact with any of this stuff. There was an altar of incense. Let's call this the altar of incense. Um, there was a bronze basin for washing hands and things. That can be this guy.
So the reason I'm showing all of these things practically is to give you a demonstration of how specific the process for accessing the presence of God used to be. And again, as I say, everything, everything points to something. Everything is suggestive of what would come to fulfillment through Jesus Christ. Um, let me just check. They, they made anointing oil for consecrating everything, and they made incense to offer up at the altar inside. Okay, so the way that the tabernacle was set up was that there was an outer court. There was a massive perimeter fence that they built around everything. And then the outer court had the altar for killing animals and the basin for washing the blood off your hands from killing an animal. Then there was a tent. Maybe if we can get two volunteers who want to come and hold this. Thank you, Joe and Paul. Hold it sort of there. So there was a tent that went all the way around, and then within the tent, there was a second veil. They're called veils, they were curtains. Does somebody want to come and hold? We need two more volunteers. What are we going to do? Oh, thanks, guys. Look at this. We're all getting to know each other. Okay. Uh, actually, you go on this side of the lampstand. Thank you. Maybe you could lower that a little bit, and then I'm going to stand behind you. Okay. So the presence of God is in here. <laughs> but if you wanted to get to it, you had to go through this whole process. Animals had to be sacrificed, hands had to be washed. And then you could enter what was called the holy place, which was the first room. And then you would offer up an offering of incense on the incense altar. The candles were always burning. They were the only thing giving light in the tabernacle. And there were 12 loaves of bread on the table of shoe bread. And that's what the priests would eat. And only the priests were allowed to access this place. They still were shielded from the Ark of the Covenant, from God's glory and his presence and his throne because they would be destroyed if they even saw it. They had to be protected by a veil. Um, let me just consult with my notes again because I'm going off script. So the outer court was open to everyone and anybody was allowed to come in. It was the space for sacrifice. It was the place where man would begin his approach to God. And when you read the Psalms, you hear all those Psalms that say things like, blessed is man when you choose and bring him near to dwell in your courts. Uh, we enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Um, one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. That's Psalm 104, 100 verse 4, Psalm 84 verse 2. Um, come into his courts, Psalm 96 verse 8. All of that language comes because people were writing songs and psalms around this time that they would have that experience. And then the, the Levites, the priests, would be allowed to then enter through this first veil into the holy place. Now, we have actually a picture. Let's see the next photo. There we go. So there's our first curtain. There's our candlestick. Their production design budget was a little more substantial than mine. Um, and then there's the second uh, curtain towards. So this was called the holy place. And then the room where the Ark of the Covenant was, it was just the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God. And that was called, somebody, anybody know? 
the holiest of holies, or the most holy place. In the holy place, there was no animal sacrifice in here, only the incense offering and the bread and the candlesticks. Incense represented prayer and worship. So what they would do is they would deal with sin out there, then they would enter in to the first layer of God's presence, and all they would do is offer up prayer and worship to God. Um, Psalm 141 verse 2 says, May my prayers rise before you like incense. And then the most holy place behind this veil sits the Ark of the Covenant. It's a room only filled with the presence and the glory of God. Now, only the high priest could enter the most holy place. And they could only do it once a year um, in the Day of Atonement. I was going to step through this, but we won't because it's going to take a lot of time. But just listen to this procedure. Again, to highlight to all of us, if you ever wanted to experience like God face to face, we just sang this morning this song. Every time we see you, we see your face. If you wanted to say those words and actually have an experience of it, you had to be the high priest, and this is what you would have to do. Bring a young bull and ram for a burnt offering. Put on your sacred linen garments. Thank you. Um, you have to bathe before you do that. Take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Take the two goats and present them to the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting out here. Um, cast lots for the goats. One you're going to kill, and one gets released into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Um, offer the bull for your own sins and for the sins of your house. Then you can enter in through this first curtain, put incense on the fire before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover, which is, will, will hide. There'll be sm so much smoke from the incense offering that it'll hide the Ark of the Covenant so that you won't die when you look at it. This is how kind of intense the presence of God was and is. Um, take some of the bull's blood, sprinkle a little bit on top of the Ark of the Covenant, um, then slaughter the goat that you were offering for sin, sprinkle some of that on the Ark of the Covenant, bring the goat, bring the live goat, lay hands on it, confess all the sins of the people, and then release it out into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Then go out of the tent, take off the linen garments um, that you put on before you enter the most holy place, then you can come outside and be like, hey, everyone, he's not going to kill us this year. <laughs> that was the process just to access the presence of God. Um, and it says, we have one other photo, I think, that shows another cross-section. Oh, yeah, so that's another kind of better depiction because it shows the kind of how the light of God's glory would appear. Then it says that... At the dedication of the tabernacle, so God gave Moses the instructions to build all this stuff, and then he built it, and at the day that they built it, it says that the cloud of God's glory settled on the tent. So the day that they dedicated, you can show us that last slide, and this is where it lived. Sorry, you're getting a face full of God's presence. Lucky you. Um... This is where the cloud of God's glory would reside. It says in Exodus 40, verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, this whole tent, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses couldn't even enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. All right, you guys can sit back down. Thank you very much. Give our volunteers a big hand.
Thank you. Oh, look at this. They're folding it up. You guys are so responsible. So for a long time, this is how God communed with his people. Thanks, Kristen. You're the best. Um, the Israelites had to follow the cloud wherever it led. I know we're just going to leave the altar for the dead animals in the middle. Never forget. Um, the Israelites would follow this cloud. So the way that it would work, the cloud would be on the tent, and then there were priests whose job was to watch the cloud. And if the cloud lifted, they'd blow their horns and be like, it's time for us to travel. And this is how they traveled through the desert. They would then follow the cloud somewhere else. It would settle back on the tent. They'd be like, we can all relax. Then the cloud would lift. They'd blow the trumpets. It would travel again. Um, this cloud would li literally was leading them into the promised land. And it's interesting when you think about the symbols of everything, if you look at the, the life in the New Testament about our relationship with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is described as a cloud, leads us in our discipleship and takes us to where God wants us to be as disciples. Um, this is where, for all those 90s Christian kids, the word Shekinah comes from. doesn't appear in the Bible, turns out. Uh, it's just sort of extra biblical texts that, that use that word to describe this cloud of God's glory um, that 90s Christians loved to say Hebrew words. Um, so that's where that came from. It was here in the tent of meeting that the cloud of God's presence would manifest over the Ark of the Covenant and he would meet with his people. Sometimes it would be in an audible voice and no one's taking notes. You're taking notes if you want to write this down. Exodus 29.42, Exodus 30 verse 6, and Numbers 7, verse 89. Um, and then Psalm 80, also the psalmist says, Hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim. Just that visual of God's throne existed on top of the Ark of the Covenant between those angels' wings. So eventually, the Ark of the Covenant makes its way to the Promised Land. And in Joshua chapter 3, we watch the way that they would travel is the Ark of the Covenant would go out in front of the people and they would have this whole procession and follow God wherever he would lead them. And they cross the River Jordan and it's this beautiful moment in Joshua where the Jordan River stops flowing so that they can all cross over with the Ark of the Covenant and it finally settles. And God has found a, a, a nation for his people to kind of settle in. This is where we meet our next character, where we're headed. Um, his name's David. Amongst Old Testament characters, David stands out pretty uniquely. There are about 14 chapters given to Abraham's life, uh, 11 given to the life of Jacob, 14 to his son Joseph, 10 chapters to the prophet Elijah. But when it comes to David, there are approximately 66 chapters inspired by his life and writings. There are about 1,200 references to his name in the Bible, 59 of them in the New Testament. He is described in 2 Samuel 21, verse 2, as the sweet psalmist of Israel. Uh, and a quick recap on David's life before we get into why he's relevant. At the time that Israel finally settled into their promised land, they'd been wandering and they didn't really have a leader. God was their leader, and then finally it was time for them to have a king. And so God is searching throughout the land looking for a king, and he spots this little teenage shepherd boy sitting on a mountaintop, uh, and Israel had been pretty established in the nation at this point, and there were great warriors, and there were strong people around, and charismatic youth pastors, and 
skinny jean wearing people. And God sees this little shepherd boy worshipping with his guitar on a hilltop looking after his sheep. And God says, that's the person that I want to be my king of Israel. Um, We then see that David experiences a pretty tumultuous journey to getting to that point. Um, But David's ultimately described as a man after God's own heart. And what we see in the life of David is, from beginning to end, someone who just worshipped God. That was his identity. He just, whether he was looking after his sheep or he was ruling the nation of Israel, his default was to just worship the Creator. And if you read his Psalms, he's the one that's talking about how magnificent you are in creation. It's like he sat on that hillside as he was looking after the sheep and just spent so much time looking around him and experiencing the magnificence of God's presence in nature and experiencing this relationship of connecting to that through music that it just carried on through the rest of his life. Um, So a lot of us are familiar with David's life story, but the significance here is that David also built a tabernacle for the presence of God to sit in. And this is where we're headed. Uh, a little recap of where the ark went after <clears throat> it arrived in Israel. It's kind of funny because it's, you forget that, the, sometimes you forget in the Old Testament that things like, stories like this happen. Um, but this ark of the covenant, I'll bring it back because we're about to look at it again. Um, it settles into Israel after they cross the Jordan. And Israel goes through an interesting period of time where, as they always would do, they're good and then they're evil and then they're good and then they're evil and then they love God and then they forget who God is and it's crazy. Um, And all the time they have this weird relationship with the Ark of the Covenant. Now, at one particular time, they'd completely lost sight of God, lost faith in God, but they remembered their history and there's one time where they went into battle and because in the past they used to like take the Ark of the Covenant and God would do great things with it, they were like superstitiously like, what if we took the Ark of the Covenant out into battle and we did something, maybe that'll work. So they try it, um, God was not in it, and they lost. So many people died, um, and the Ark of the Covenant was actually taken from them. Um, and at this time, when they went to do that, under King Saul, the Ark of the Covenant had settled. He basically put a permanent house for Moses' tabernacle on a Mount Gibeon, which is relevant in a minute. Um, So the ark became lost. The enemy captured it, and these passages are pretty funny. Not that people's suffering is funny, but if you read 1 Samuel chapter 6, you literally watch the Philistines capture the ark of the covenant, and they're like, we finally have it. And it literally destroys every city that it goes into. (laughs) They get sick. There's one passage where they put it in one of their temples because they think it's like a holy relic. Let's put it with one of our gods. And overnight, they're idol falls on its face in front of the Ark of the Covenant, and so then they put it back up, and then the next night, it's fallen again, and its head, its arms, and its legs have all snapped off. It's just a torso, and they're like, we need to get this thing out of here. <laughs> this thing's, this is not of God, of our God. Um, it would go from city to city, and people would just get sick, and eventually they were like, we need to give this thing back, like, because the presence of God was still, somehow, mysteriously, still connected to this thing. So, they eventually send it back, um, and when it comes back to Israel, by this point, the Israelites, they kind of remember the history of the ark, but it's sort of, they're not super familiar with the details of it, so they're all, like, excited that this relic has come back into their possession, 
They look into it and it says 70 men died just by looking into it because they were just like, it's back. Ah! Um, and I think it highlights that there is still, even after all of those things, God still had an order and a, a system for how to approach him and, and his presence was supposed to be handled with reverence and with respect and they obviously did not do that. Um, so, this is the moment where David becomes king and says, all right, it's time for me. God's put it on my heart to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. Second Samuel chapter 6 tells this story. Uh, and when David wanted to bring the Ark back, he went to find it and built a cart to carry it back. Now, originally the Ark used to be carried on people's shoulders, um, but they were like, it's probably easier if we just use a cart. So David builds a cart and they start wheeling it through, and they're all celebrating, and then the cart hits a bump in the road, and one of the men, called Uzzah, who was helping to lead the cart, freaks out and reaches across to, like, steady the ark, and God kills him in an instant. Again, because God's like, you can't just trifle with my presence. So David's like, okay, why don't we all just wait a minute? They park the ark at somebody's house. Imagine being that guy. They're like, sorry, this thing just killed 70 people and then also killed another person. And we're just going to leave it here for a little while. Um, he'd be like, okay. Uh, interestingly, that guy's name is Obed-Edom. It lived in his house for three months and it says that it brought him great blessing. Imagine that feeling. You wake up the next day and your corn is like sky high. And you're like, whoa! Your cows are like twice the size. You're like, let's go. Um, okay, uh, I guess I, I give these little details just to explain the presence of God is like a real tangible thing that has to be taken seriously and brings blessing and also can bring intense glory that can kill you. David had such a desire to build a house for God to live in, and so following the instructions that Moses had got, he was like, okay, I've read up on how we're supposed to transport this thing, so let's do it. And so they finally properly transport the ark back into Jerusalem. Now, interestingly, and this is something that is not, it's not really written in Scripture exactly why this happens, you would think he would put it back where Moses' tabernacle was, but he didn't. He actually pitched a whole new tent. Um, and we don't really know why that is. But uh, you can read about this in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16. What David did was build a whole new tent and put the Ark of the Covenant in it, and that was David's tabernacle. So while Moses' system of approaching and all of those things was still happening in Mount Gibeon, on Mount Zion, the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God, the presence of God, the glory of God, was just in a single tent. It was literally like taking the most holy place and just putting it and going, this is going to be the new way of accessing the presence of God. And God blessed it. We don't really know... God obviously gave David this kind of prophetic idea that he could do this because other people had died doing things. I guess it shows that God was doing a new thing. Um, and this is the bit that's interesting about, why, about what David did next. Uh, they bring the ark of the Lord. They set it in its place in the midst of the, of the tent or the tabernacle that David had pitched. David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. And that was the last time that they offered offerings in front of the ark of the covenant. What he then did was appoint musicians and singers to play in front of the ark of the Lord day and night. So David's tabernacle was quite simply the ark of the covenant in a room. And 
he appointed musicians and singers to stand around it and sing. Um, can we get some musicians and singers? Paul and Joe. Sorry, guys. Kelsey. Do you want to just come and walk circles around? <laughs> I think it's very helpful for us to... Uh, you don't have to play the guitar. It's fine. It feels like a lot of effort. Um, if you could just do laps... He has made me glad. <laughs> so I show, this is to show that this new system was put in place. What David did was appoint musicians and singers to do things like sing, play instruments, write psalms, clap hands. They would shout. You can shout. Yeah. Great. They would dance. Kelsey said, No. They would lift their hands. The lifting of hands is like an act of surrender in Psalm 141 where it says, let my prayer rise to you as incense and the lifting of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. Once upon a time, only the high priest would lift his hands. But David, yeah, you guys can sit down. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Once upon a time, only the high priest could lift his hands. But now David had discovered this new freedom in singing songs around the presence of God that all of us can lift our hands. Um, they would offer spiritual sacrifices. So once where it used to be a sacrifice of a ram or a goat, now it's a sacrifice of praise or thanksgiving. That's where these words come from. We bring a sacrifice of praise to the house of the Lord. They would worship. There would be postures of worship. They would bow down. They would stoop low. They would prostrate oneself. I always have to double-check that word before I say it. Um, through David, God showed us a new way of accessing his presence. Worship as we see in the life of David, is a direct way to the throne of God. And we see this confirmed in the, story, in the book of Revelation. We did a series on it. We know that the throne of God is surrounded by people singing and worshipping him. All right, we're going to skip to the end because we are running out of time and I like to talk. Um, on the day, finally, King Solomon builds the temple that's the final housing place of the Ark of the Covenant. And what Solomon does is take the system that Moses had and the system that David had, puts them together in a physical building, not a tent, and this lives forever. Well, not forever. It eventually gets destroyed. But uh, this is the permanent resting place of the presence of God. But what he did was he also got musicians and singers. And there's this amazing story that happens at the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. It says that when the musicians and singers emerged from playing their instruments in front of the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God fell so thickly that they couldn't even play their instruments. They came out after celebrating, offering their things of thanks and praise and songs and psalms. And they emerge in front of all the people and everybody's just stunned to complete silence because the presence of God is so thick. So let's jump ahead to Jesus. These two tents are just the shadow of the ultimate dwelling place of God amongst men, which is Jesus. Jesus is both of these things met in one person. In John's prologue of his gospel, he says, Jesus is the word that became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word John actually uses is, he tabernacled among us. Jesus was literally like a tent. If a person could be a, if a tent could be a person, Jesus was a tent. I'm going to write my next worship song, Jesus was a tent. He was the embodiment of the presence of God, 
and the pathway to God's presence. When Jesus died, the veil that protected the Holy of Holies that was still in the temple ripped because it was God's way of saying, you don't need to do the sacrifices anymore. You can now just access me directly. The thing that used to kill people, you now have free access because of the death of Jesus. We no longer need to be shielded from God's glory and holiness because we no longer carry the guilt of sin in our lives. Where once only the high priest could enter the presence of God, now the Bible says that we are a kingdom of priests. All of us have access to the presence of God as believers. That's in Revelation 1 verse 6 and in 1 Peter 2 verse 5. And now, this is the exciting part for me, the church is the dwelling place of God's presence. We are individually the church, and we are collectively the church. So this is the exciting stuff. I'm just going to fire off a few. John 14, 17 says, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him because he abides in you. Jesus, the presence of God and the pathway to God, lives in us. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus, this is Romans 8, 5, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Ephesians 3, 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What I'm trying to say is this tent that used to be this external space with all these rules that we had to go through to access God's presence, resides in us. The way to access the presence of God is through Christ in us. We literally carry around our own smoke machines. 2 Peter 1 verse 4 says, He has given us this, many, this very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. Hebrews 12 verse 10 says that we share in God's holiness. 1 John 3, 2 says we are God's children now and when he comes we will be like him for we will see him as he really is. This stuff is so exciting. Um, The last scripture on that is 1 John 4, 15. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. That's all stuff about us as individuals. There's also the principle of us as a church. In Matthew 18, 20, Jesus says we're Two or three are gathered in my name. I am in the midst of them. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Don't you know that you are God's temple, you as a collective, and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? Colossians 1.26, The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 1 Timothy, I'm writing these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves as God's household, which is the church of the living God. We as individuals carry the presence of God, and we as a collective carry the presence of God. And whilst we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore because we just have direct access, we have the of what David started through music. When we worship God, we experience a manifestation of his presence. When we sing, just as David's priests and Levites would play around the ark and experience the presence of God, now we who have the presence of God inside of us, when we sing our songs, 
Our smoke machine emerges from the inside of us. The presence of God is manifest. Not only does Jesus live in us, but when Jesus left, he gave us his Holy Spirit. So that cloud that used to lead the Israelites around, that was like a a symbol of how the Holy Spirit leads us, we literally carry a cloud inside of us. So when we're like, you are my portion, in the atmosphere around us, this is what happens. This is just the principle of it. The Bible does actually say, um, the prophet Amos and then later James the Apostle says that in those... in In the days of the church, I'm paraphrasing, but you can do your own research on this, I will restore David's fallen tent, which which means not only that Jesus is our king, but that also the way that David worshipped God and accessed the presence of God through music, we also live in that legacy. So this is why when we worship, it's not just about singing songs. It's not just about creating a fun atmosphere. Maybe we can trick people into giving us lots of money if we work their emotions enough. It's got nothing to do with any of that. It's about a principle of accessing the presence of God through the sound of our voices singing. In the early church, I am wrapping up, I promise. In the early church, we saw evidence of them singing songs together. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of God dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing each other in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness to God. On Sunday, that's why we say you enter in Uh, On Sunday, the way we sort of structure a service is like walking into the temple. You start off with songs of praise and thanksgiving, because, you know, you come from the worst morning ever, Sunday morning traffic. You've probably given 10 people the middle finger. You've sworn. You've yelled at your loved ones. You've divorced. You've sinned in every possible fashion. You arrive at church, and you're like, ugh. But we start off by bringing a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and we're like, oh, God, you are good, you are good, you are good. And then you start to feel, as you sing those songs, the atmosphere of the room changes. And then you're sort of, next thing you know, you're like, ah, I actually feel like being here. And you're making your way into this place of intimate presence, of, of the intimate presence of God, so that by the time we sing those songs that are like, Holy, 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 you're ready, because we've like led you in. We've entered his gates with thanksgiving in our hearts and his courts with praise. And in this context, that's why we sing worship songs. We don't just sing pop songs and change the lyrics. We sing oceans. We sing psalms and scripture. Um, One of the saddest things about the kind of contemporary worship culture is that I think a lot of worship songs these days are written by people that don't actually read their Bibles which is a shame. That's like pop culture in general. Most pop music is written by people that don't have a very good vocabulary. Um, But in this church, we strive to have worship songs that are scriptural so that we're not just singing somebody's personal expression of loving God, which is important, but we're also singing actual scripture so that we're singing the word of God to God. Um, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We also sing spiritual songs to the Lord. We do that in our church where we we're growing in this, where sometimes it's appropriate to sing a song that's not even got lyrics or music. We just stand and we sing our own song. You'll hear me do it all the time down the front. Um, when we do these things, we, we change the atmosphere that we're in. We're continuing a legacy that's thousands of years old. Um, when you think of Paul and Silas in prison, we know that story in Acts chapter 16. These guys were locked up and they were stuck. And what did they do? 
and started singing songs, just worshiping God, and the presence of God that resided inside of them began to manifest around them in the prison. They were just like, you are good, good, oh, oh. and the earth started moving, and they were like, ah, you are good. The presence of God fills that place, causes an earthquake, God sets them free, all these people get saved. That's what happens when we worship God. When we sing songs of praise to Him, the presence of God that is in us overflows and we experience intimacy with Him. So we've been given this gift of accessing the presence of God through our worship. We are going to be a worshiping church. That is our desire as your worship leaders and as your worship pastors is to learn all the different postures of what it means to worship God shouting, clapping hands, singing in the Spirit, singing in tongues, all those things that sound scary. I don't have time to get into it um, right now, but we will. We change atmospheres with our singing. Um, If you want to hear from God, worship Him. If you want to meet with God, worship Him. If you want to experience His presence, worship Him. So why don't we worship Him? Tavi, would you guys want to jump up? Um... Sorry, we've gone a little, little bit longer. But um, it's my prayer that you guys would understand this incredible gift that we've been given that is music. That once upon a time, it wasn't so easy to just access the presence of God. But, but the, through the ministry of David and his life, we've been given this opportunity to enter the presence of God with singing and thanksgiving. And next time, wherever when you're in life and you're struggling or you're just feeling like you just need God to show up, just worship Him. Sing. If you don't sing, play an instrument um, or get around people that that can sing with you because it literally changes atmospheres. Bring your smoke machine and meet with other people's smoke machines. Um, All right. Should we join?